how much better could where we live and work be if we actually were more conscious of our responsibilities to all living beings? Today's episode is all about our sense of place and belonging. And with purpose and vision, we can create better by tapping into the Indigenous perspectives. Here in Australia, the Aboriginals really were the first planners who adopted a light touch that was in sync with country. It was respectful and led to more connection. In many ways, we've lost this connection and we're all poorer as a result. Ellie Davidson is my special guest today. You may remember she was recommended by Jason Timor. Well, Ellie is an Aboriginal town planner and helps create culturally responsive approaches in all developments so that we're all richer for the input. It's a beautiful interview that really does ground us in what's important today. I'm James Lush, and this is Purpose and Vision. You're listening to Purpose and Vision, the podcast that digs deep into why and how companies are making a greater impact in our world by focusing on profit and purpose. This is the podcast that tells the stories and inspires us all to think differently about business today. Jingili, my name is Ellie Davidson. I'm a Balangara woman here, uh, standing on Nyambal uh, country of the Bundjalung Nation. Um, very fortunate to live and work and call the northern rivers of New South Wales home. Um, and yeah, I'd like to start by paying my respects to um, the Bundjalung people who have uh, had custodial care obligations for this country and um, throughout the recording you might hear lots of bird life in the background I'm fortunate enough to live by a body of water and for us as Aboriginal people um, you know water has always been really important a place of movement and a place of sustenance and my dad who's Aboriginal um, you know he goes out and goes fishing quite frequently at the front of our house and so um, yeah I just like to acknowledge the special place that I'm located on and um, also just like to extend that respect to yourself and anyone else who's listening. Um, yeah, just taking a moment to acknowledge your surroundings and acknowledge the custodians of country where you're dialing in from or listening from, connecting with us from and um, yeah, just thanking them for creating a space for you to enjoy. That's beautiful. And um, a, a lovely way to start the podcast today. And it's perfect. It's, it's a perfectly obvious place to start for the work that you do, which is all about the engagement. It's all about the planning. It's all about bringing in what I suppose, sadly, um, is being neglected in, in a lot of our town planning, city planning, life planning. Is that what mm. you'd say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that for me, it's really interesting to think of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first planners. Um, I'm a town planner by trade and, you know, I um, I cut my teeth in a lot of kind of state and, um, and private consulting um, over my formative years as a planner and now really occupy a space where I'm really focused particularly on um, thinking about Aboriginal perspectives in, in the work that is, is happening and something that I'm always so inspired by is, is considering Aboriginal people as the first planners, you know, the complexity around how 
country was engaged with and the practices of, um, you know, making sure that we had a really light touch um, on our impact of country and the way that we needed to live in sync with country um, and, you know, people were not prioritised over any other um, living being. And I think that um, up until recently, uh, the context of all of those things, the complexity of how mob engaged with country and the sophistication around how places were allocated and used without these really hard boundaries, but, you know, the qualities of country would mean that different interactions with country happened in different places and that's essentially what planners do, mm. but um, you know, for me, in a much more responsive way, those those old ways. Yeah, I, I'm so interested in that what you just sort of listed there, and I was just taking notes, thinking, "Gosh, yeah, you're right." You know, the, the first planners will obviously. I mean, <laughs> that goes without <laughs> saying, right? But I, I really mm. like this idea of the light touch, and and nothing is more important than anything else that you know, people aren't if you like the 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 top of the chain it, it's about everyone and everything do you think we've we've lost that in in, in so many of our, our cityscapes oh, i mean i think that we've lost that in life just generally you mm. know i think that the uh um, western individual way of thinking has created a monster you know with with many of the things that we're there dealing with in society and the context of where we find ourselves at the moment as well. Um, you know, I think that this very mind, 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 take, 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 progress up this success ladder has caused us to, you know, arrive where we are. And I yeah. think that there are many things that we can learn from from Aboriginal knowledges. But, um, yeah, particularly when we when we think about the built environment, the natural environment, you know, the context of things that we have to deal with, um, you know, urban heating, bushfires, flooding, um, droughts, you know, just our um, resource-heavy nature and the level of impact that individuals are having with what has been created uh, in the way that we consume and the way that we engage with the environment and the lifestyles that we live um, you know, globalization, you know, has really increased that level of impact for us as, as human beings. And, um, yeah, it's really interesting, I think, when I reflect on um, how, for instance, I'm, I'm having some conversations at the moment about the um, versatile nature of the Kulamon and all of the different ways that a Kulamon was used. So, the Kulamon was, um, you know, a, a, a round sort of oval dish, you might call it, that could be taken from a tree and it was used for so many different things. And in the conversations I'm having with um, people about the use of the Kulamon, um, we started talking about sustainability and sustainable practices. And I think, well, think about all of the things that we've just listed. Most of them would now be, you, you know, would be a, a plastic implement we're talking about a wooden implement that has that versatility that could have been used for all of these different things. And, um, yeah, it really got me thinking of, yeah, returning to those um, more 
responsive ways of living in tune with nature. Yeah. The idea of the podcast, obviously, purpose and vision, uh, and I suppose in brackets, a little more thinking um, would be handy, um, is really what it's about. And I, I'm thinking in our conversation that we're having already how little thinking goes into some of the things which used to be incredibly obvious. And as you say, over the last goodness knows how many years, we've we've lost touch. I, I sense there's a sort of awakening, and I don't think it's happening rapidly, but I'm I'm, I'm sensing that it's turning a little what what do you what do you sense yeah i can i can definitely see a shift um in the last couple of years the level of engagement the number of voices um the depth of the dialogue has all shifted a lot um and there is increasing expectation that these types of perspectives and knowledges are embedded into you know our um, way of working and way of living so um yeah i couldn't agree more there is a huge shift happening at the moment and i think that there's a number of reasons for that but um at the end of the day i think it's a really important shift in this dialogue and for me um i think the most challenging thing is uh, overcoming the silence and maybe a sense of shame, like the broader Australian society, um, you know, have not grown up with these types of conversations happening very freely. Their education mm. system has failed them in having the appropriate skills and capacity to really respond to this space. So, um, yeah, I think that there is a, a huge awakening, but it is in my mind, you know, a lifetime of unlearning and a lifetime of relearning. So I don't think it's going to change overnight dramatically, but um, there's certainly a lot of momentum. Yeah, okay, that's that's good. So let's just talk now about how you get involved in some of the projects, where you come along and open people's eyes to what is actually possible, doable, and will make a huge difference. Where do you start? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think... Well, for me, it always starts with a relationship. I think a lot of my work comes through, um, you know, work that I've done with other people, knowing people within industry. Um, and, and for me, that, that feels right. You know, um, I from a cultural framework perspective, um, as an Aboriginal person, relationships should always lead. Um, and so I think that that's the, the main thing for me. And really, it's about people approaching um, at whatever point in their project and, you know, I suppose coming alongside them to understand how they can work with country, community and culture. They're the three kind of areas that I really focus in on. They're all very interconnected. Um, So for me, it's just about kind of understanding the context of where a particular project is at, what the needs are of the client, and then collaboratively working with them around how I might be able to support, you know, better outcomes in this space so um you know i suppose for me it's always like the earlier the better (laughs) Um, i'd love to be engaged you know at at a point where a decision hasn't even been made about a project happening so that might be a piece of infrastructure it might be a new housing estate Um, it might be a strategic plan and visioning exercise Um, you know the sooner you can 
build relationship with Aboriginal communities and understand what their needs are in that space and identify those opportunities for reciprocity, um, the better, really. Um, so I come in at all different parts and phases, um, depending on where a project is at, but my ultimate desire is to get in as early as yes. possible so you can sort of take the community on that journey. You mentioned the words better outcomes. Can you elaborate on what you sense are better outcomes for everybody? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, prioritising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices and what that looks like and what their needs are, I think better outcomes for me are things that are Aboriginal-led come from the community. Um, and, you know, I always just see anything that the Aboriginal community want is going to be better for all of us. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. the context of, um, you know, the cultural framework that Aboriginal people live by and within, you know, the sense of putting country first, of, um, you know, cultural practices, all of the things that, you know, as a byproduct of Aboriginal people, um, you know, leading outcomes um, is that we all receive um, something from that, a strengthened identity, opportunities to engage and celebrate. Um, I think that a lot of um, money right now is invested into very reactive responses to Aboriginal um, uh, matters and for me it's like if you invest up front and you allow Aboriginal people to strengthen their connection to country that's going to help with their identity it's going to solve a lot of the other issues that relate to the unresolved trauma yes. and the lack of connection to culture um, and you know those things need space they need things within the built environment to be integrated you know we all we all need that and so I um yeah I feel really privileged to be in a position to advocate on behalf of what Aboriginal people would like to see happen and um, try to embed that into um, you know our future places and spaces. When you're brought in on, uh, at the initial level and you're having these conversations, do you feel that you, with the greatest respect, you're just ticking a box for a lot of the authorities? Or do you see that you're now sort of central to their thinking? Oh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, you know, the whole box ticking thing has always been such a challenge for us because I think it's like, you know, it's this feel good, or oh, we've engaged with the Aboriginal community and then we're just going to keep doing what we were going to do at yep. the start. Um, I suppose that I see as much of my work, you know, empowering Aboriginal voices in these projects, but also almost a bit of a education capacity building um, process for the clients that I'm working with. Um, you know, I think really articulating um, why it's important and you know, holding people accountable to what you're going to do with what you hear and how it should shape, like, the outcomes. Um, I'm very conscious of really, um, you know, my integrity and my reputation amongst the Aboriginal community is too important to me to engage in processes that don't lead to any outcomes for mm -hmm. the community. Mm -hmm. So I have a very... Uh, 
strong kind of um, decision-making matrix around what I say yes and no to. And if it feels like it's just a one-way transactional um, outcome, then I tend to not pursue that type of work because it's not really within the type of thing that I want to do. And if there's no opportunity for outcomes for Aboriginal people, then I either push back on that and try to get more from the project um, or I, I walk away from it because for me, you know, I just, I, I have no time or space to engage with mm. box ticking. Um, it's just yeah, yeah, perpetuating a lot of the issues that we've, <laughs> um, been trying to resolve. Yeah, for sure. Where, where do you feel that you have, uh, the most engagement? Where do they really tap into your expertise and sort of sense that by bringing this in, it will change that whole landscape that they're, they're creating? Um, yeah, I mean, as I said, I think like the earlier the better. If you can, if you can get in at that visioning process and and try to be involved in how things move, you know, beyond that into implementation. Um, I think that yeah, I I always feel like I I get the most out of empowering voices at mm. those early phases. I think that it becomes a lot more integrated and embedded in terms of outcomes. Give me an example. What? What? Give me an example of somewhere where you were involved from the very start that had an influence on how the design then took hold. Um, so one project that I've um, been working on for the last couple of years is the uh, Western Sydney uh, Aerotropolis, so the new uh, airport at Badgerys Creek that's been spoken about for a very long time. Um, I mean, we a decision had already been made that that airport was going ahead, so we're not really in that very early yep. phase. Yeah. But um, working with the Department of Planning uh, here in New South Wales meant that... Um, I was able to, I, I partner, um, my, my company partners with a larger consulting firm and we delivered Aboriginal engagement for the precinct planning. Um, so they'd already had a structure plan um, developed, which sort of set that overarching vision. But luckily, um, within the government architects of New South Wales, um, a couple of Aboriginal uh team members had really integrated country into that document and as an overarching um, requirement of the objectives for the project, recognised country was, was within the structure plan. So then from the structure plan, it went into the precinct planning and, um, you know, we engaged with... Uh, over 130 people, um, Aboriginal people within the Western Sydney community and um, heard some really rich feedback and then helped to implement what we heard within the precinct planning. Um, a lot of what we heard was not really able to, I suppose, be realised at that higher level within the precinct planning, but we did get things like, you know, ridge to creek line, view corridors to allow that sense of connection to country and we did um, have some very strong outcomes in terms of uh, a response to the cultural heritage mapping yep. um, and how those places could be sort of allocated not for development but for more green spaces yep. 
And then um, since then, we've been working on uh, some inputs to the development control plan. And for me, that's where, you know, the rubber hits the road. It's like nice to have all of these overarching kind of principles and objectives and visions and all of those um, outcomes. But the development control plan is going to require uh, applicants to uh, recognize country and how that will be realized is through um, the cultural landscape, through the built form, um, through language and naming. Um, so there's going to be quite a lot of very tangible outcomes that every application is going to need mm -hmm. to respond to so yeah we've sort of gone out really wide and and at that bigger level and now sort of um bringing it down into how to make this real uh on the ground which has been a pretty incredible experience yeah. okay what difference do you think it's made what would people notice what what impact has it had on people's lives um so i think like you know I suppose one of the things that we have to be mindful of in the space that I operate in is that a lot of this is so far down the line like you know uh, it is um, planning and this kind of strategic planning is um, is so far off kind of realized benefits but I think for me in in those layers of outcomes that we're you know putting into the DCP um, is that we as an Aboriginal person or as, as, a, as, as any person, going into a place and feeling a sense of cultural safety is one of our objectives. So if you're in a place and you look around and, you know, the colours of country are surrounding you and um, there's language and naming and um, you get a real sense of where you are, you're not sort of in this very built-up urban environment, but you can be standing with lots of buildings around you and have a real sense of, you know, I'm standing here and there's the creek line or there is a big view, you know, it's actually allowing people in the future when these things get implemented to have an opportunity to connect to country in an urban environment. Um, and I think that that's something that will be of great benefit to everybody. Yeah, because you talk very much with this, um, deep down connection that Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders have. D do you think, I'll put myself in this category, that, you know, the, 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 the white folks that have come and done what they've done have not got that connection, have no understanding of this, that, that, that you can really show what is there if only there'll be some listening going on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that... I don't think that there's been a better time to talk about the value of nature and the importance of being able to connect outdoors. You know, I think as many of us are kind of confined inside with lockdown, it's those morning walks, it's the, you know, afternoon, you know, in the park or doing activity outside that um, you hear a lot more people engaging in a conversation about how important those experiences are to yeah. their mental health. And so I think that there is definitely an increase in people understanding the value that they probably never really placed on um, the natural environment that's definitely increasing. Um, and I feel like that helps people people's perspective um to to broaden out but 
for me, it's also just about the definition of, of land, you know, from a development perspective and a lot of people in the built environment, they consider land as a resource um, to be controlled, to be developed, to be, you know, lived on and, and made money out of as a commodity, whereas Aboriginal people don't see it like that. They see it as something that they have obligations to care for and to live in sync with and um, to to nurture because we believe that if we care for country, she will care for us. There's a lot more reciprocity in that rather than take, take, take. Um, so I think that some of these um, perspectives are beginning to expand for the broader community mm. as well because I think that we've realised that you know, in a very, very quick time frame, we've got ourselves into a bit of a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> well, beautifully put. Um, people might say it's quite a strong pickle, but um, <laughs> just get your take on this. This is a, a bit, that line I, I've always loved that, you know, if you care for country, it'll care for us. It, it's, it's such a beautiful line. And as you say, it's been neglected because uh, for whatever reason there is this looking at this and what can I dig up and sell and what can I exploit or what can I, uh, you know, effectively make money from. And mm. your mindset is totally different. I just want to get your, your, your take and, and your advice that you can share with anyone listening to this, say they're designing a, um, uh, something that is going to make a difference in our world and to, to get your input from the very beginning where, where would people reach out how would they start this process and, and how would they if you like have a conversation with others to say this is what we need to do rather than as you said at the beginning and just have a box ticked yeah look i think it just really takes shifting business as usual it's like mm. before you even make a decision about whether something should happen it's about getting Aboriginal people around the table. You know, I think that unfortunately in this space, um, people are so used to let's form up these ideas, maybe get a little bit of input and then we'll take out a, a draft for feedback and then we'll go away and we'll do heaps more work and then we'll go out at this point and get feedback. And, you know, and that's, you know, twice maybe three times if you're lucky as touch points with community. And um, for me, it's about really shifting um, the way that you view those things and how to make it a lot more collaborative with yeah. the community, yeah. how you can, you know, sit down and have a yarn and have a cuppa without there's this nervousness about we need to have answers to everything before we can go out and have a conversation with people because we need to justify what we want. But maybe what you want isn't something to be justified, you know, actually asking yourself the question of we've come to this resolve ourselves, but how can, yeah, how can we take Aboriginal people on this journey with us? So I think it's, um, yeah, it's really about shifting this kind of engagement um, to a sense of partnership, how you yeah. can work in partnership with the Aboriginal community rather than these touch points specifically. That's lovely. I really love that. The, the word collaboration, partnership always, always appeals to me. And you, you've just demonstrated that beautifully. Um, just uh, uh, let's just sort of close by getting your thoughts on where we should t go next. You, you've taken us in such a rich direction today. Where would you like me with purpose and vision to go and uh, have a conversation next, Elliot? It is your right to choose. 
<laughs> I love that. Um, I would I would say um, giving Michaela Jade a call. She's an amazing um, Cabrigal woman, and she has set up her own uh, Aboriginal digital agency. And, and I absolutely love the work that she's doing. She's you know won all of these awards for being an innovator and has been doing incredible work but really her vision is to make sure that aboriginal people are engaged in the digital space and i love that um some of the things that i've heard her talk about or what her vision is um is basically using digital platforms um to uh, engage with with country and culture and for me that is the future it's about integrating these technologies and and resources and and how we can um you know shift them into something that's beneficial for mobs so i'd really love for you to go and have mm. a yarn with her and you know she's into augmented realities and all of that stuff um which i think is really the future and um for me you know it's this really interesting conversation about how how can we, if we're going to be building and we're going to be developing, um, how can we preserve a sense of country being country before those things are lost? Like country is always going to be country. You know, you build on top of country, country is still there. But, um, you know, I think that some of the platforms that Michaela is creating is, a, is something for us to really harness and uh, allow our future generations to have a really immersive experience of what country was before this development got put on top and um, provide that platform for engaging. That'll be great. I, I shall um, find my way to her and have a chat with her. And I just want to end with... Uh, you, you mentioned the word visioning, and I love this because purpose and vision is what it's all about. What can we see? What, where, where are we going? What would ideal, what would great, what would amazing look like for you with regards to a sense of place, a sense of belonging? Paint a picture of how it, it looks in your eye that we can all get a piece of that and go, that would be great. I'd love that too. Yeah, I mean, I would I would love for, for people to uh, have can consistent opportunities to engage with country in our built environment. So, you know, walking into a place, that place being named after country, so you're already starting with language. Um, for us as Aboriginal people, we always call country named herself. So the qualities of country we used for, um, for naming. So starting with that, but, um, you know, to, to really get a sense of where you are, who was here, who's connected, um, you know, the important values and stories of that place. Basically, like a, a, an opportunity to be educated in the built environment and for Aboriginal voices and presence um, to be celebrated within our most public places and spaces. But also, I think it's important to, you know, integrate really strong truth-telling. So it's not just about you know, what was he before, but what's happened on this country and being bold enough to have, you know, truthful dialogue within that place about, you know, any massacres that's happened, the strength and resilience of the community, you know, these events of our shared history that everybody should really know about, uh, seen and acknowledged and present so that we all have an opportunity to engage with places in a really balanced way where we can understand 
where we've come from and hopefully where we're going to as well mm. as a more united nation. Beautiful. Ellie, it's been lovely to talk to you. Where can people find you if they want to reach out and get in touch? Uh, probably LinkedIn's easiest, Ellie, E-double-L-E, Davidson, Mike Harley. Um, yeah, always happy to connect with people on there. We also have a website. It needs updating. Um, it's it's a little bit out of date at the moment, but that's just Zion, Z-I-O-N-E-P.com.au. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for, no for, for sharing such a beautiful insight um, with us and for showing what it could be like and how we could all be together better. And let's um, hope we keep in touch and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Bubble bear. That means thank you and see you soon. <laughs> I like that much better than goodbye. That sounds much better. <laughs> thank you, Ellie. Right. Bubble bear. You've been listening to Purpose and Vision. For more details about this podcast, go to the website purposeandvisionpodcast.com or find us on Facebook at Purpose and Vision, on Instagram, purpose.vision, and on Twitter at PurposeVision1. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and perhaps you'd be kind enough to rate the show. This will help others find it. Just go to where you download your podcast and enter a review. Thank you so much. <laughs>